On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers are just about done adding coaches, but one of their last hires is interesting, if only because of his name. Let's take a second to look at their latest hires before diving into some interesting comments about the Packers' leadership structure. Then, when the Packers' 2018 season really came to an end. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Mirnink. What a show we have ahead of us today. Lots to cover, so let's dive right in. It's been a couple episodes since we've talked about the Packers hiring coaches, but they have done so again today, adding two names to their leadership structure, I guess their coaching group. I guess I'm, I'm thinking leadership because there's something we got to talk about here in a second related to that. Uh, some very interesting stuff from Mark Murphy. But that is not that uh, this news, so let's talk about the coaches being hired. Luke Butkus has been named the assistant offensive line coach in Green Bay. Yes, he is related to Dick Butkus. You did not hear that uh, last name wrong. He is Dick Butkus's nephew. Mr. Butkus, the younger, I suppose, uh, has some extensive background working with the offensive line. Most recently, he has worked as the offensive line coach at the University of Illinois. Prior to that, he's got a bunch of different pro stops on his resume. He was a quality control coach with the Seahawks. He was an offensive line coach with the Jaguars, overlapping with Nathaniel Hackett in 2015. He was an assistant offensive line coach with the Bears, played shortly, very shortly, as a professional football player. Uh, both in the NFL and in NFL Europe. He was a center in college. Seems like a pretty good hire. The Packers also added Raina Stewart as their special teams quality control coach. This one's a little bit more interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, that you would need an additional quality control coach for special teams um, rather than just having one on offense and on defense, which is more or less what they've done in the past, that they don't currently have an offensive QC coach. It wouldn't be surprising to see them add one. It's also interesting that the Packers now have three special teams coaches. They have Sean Menenga. They have Maurice Drayton, who carries over from last year. He was Ron Zook's assistant special teams coach. And now you have Stewart, the third guy in that room. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think it is interesting. And it could be evidence that the Packers are really trying to get this special teams thing right. As we've seen in the past, more coaches being involved is not necessarily a good thing. The Packers had tons of high-level coaches last year, lots of coordinators, passing game coordinators, run game coordinators, so on and so forth. It did not lead to more success. But given the Packers' overall turnover on their coaching staff, it may not be the worst thing in the world to have more guys having a little bit of input. Some info on Stewart. He worked as a special teams coordinator under Sean Menenga, an assistant special teams coordinator, as well as holding some other roles at Vanderbilt for the past three seasons. Previously, he was also a defensive quality control coach with the Titans from 2009 through 2011. He stopped at another another couple places as well. Also a former uh, NFL player. He played 71 games in the NFL for the Oilers, Dolphins, and Jaguars. I think it's never a bad idea to have some former players around. We talked a little bit about that with Alvis Witted. He's a guy who's done it, and he can show more guys who may be on the lower end of the roster how to be pros and what they need to do to survive in professional football. Never a bad thing to have that kind of perspective around. The interesting 
headline or story or whatever you want to call it today comes from the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And it's interesting because of comments and discussion that we've had pretty much over the past year or so, 13 months of discussion on the Packers' leadership structure. Mark Murphy and Tom Olson, Olson, who is the lead director of the Packers' executive committee, sat down to discuss the team's leadership structure with Richard Ryman of the Green Bay Press-Gazette. Great, great get by Ryman here. Pretty much a dream interview situation for anybody who's involved in the Packers' leadership picture. And you should read the entire piece at PackersNews.com. But there's lots of good questions and answered answers by everybody involved here. Two quotes that stick out in this piece for different reasons. I'm going to read you an extended session section here from Mark Murphy, and then we have a shorter kind of almost throwaway quote. But the Murphy section goes a little bit like this, quoting from the piece, quote, I'll be involved and supportive, but I'm not going to make football decisions. He said, he being Murphy, he continues, I'm not making decisions on who we're going to draft or who's on the 53 man roster or whether we should pass on third and one. It's completely up to Matt to complete the coaching staff, end quote. The piece continues, Murphy prefers that the general manager and head coach collaborate rather than work for one work for the other. They have clearly defined responsibilities, but there are areas where they need to work together. Murphy speaks again. It would be very different if Matt was reporting directly to Brian and he was a supervisor. Now there's a partnership that I think will really benefit the organization, Murphy said. He continues, if they can't agree on something, they come to me. And what I usually say is we'll sit down and I want you to work it out. And then they work it out, end quote. Peace continues, Murphy wouldn't reveal whether he'll consider resuming the previous structure. Quote, once I say that, all I hear is, well, is it time yet? Ron Wolf did it this way, he said. Continuing, I'm very comfortable with the structure now. I think it's working well for us. For instance, Brian did not have to worry about firing Mike McCarthy. That was my decision. That's not easy to do, end quote. I think this is really good. Mark Murphy is actually sitting down and explaining the reasoning behind what he's doing. And I think this should put to rest the idea that Mark Murphy is power hungry here. He's pretty clearly outlined the responsibilities for what Brian Gutekunst needs to do, what Matt LaFleur needs to do, and how those two are going to work together. He's not getting in there and telling them what they need to do. He's just making it so neither one is reporting to the other. And I think this is a legitimate way to look at things. I'm not entirely sure that old model is necessarily the only way you have to do things. It did work really well for the Packers in the past, but it's not the only way to run a football team. Plenty of other organizations in the NFL have similar lineups. So maybe that shouldn't be that big of a concern. And I think at the very least, this reinforces the idea that he's not meddling. It's good to have him sit down and explain that for once because we haven't gotten necessarily a lot of explanation on that in the past. I think it's also evidence that Murphy believes that there really may not be such a thing as him sitting back and just letting the football players or football people handle football. And I'm not sure we ever really should have thought of things that way. I know I've advocated 
variations of that in the past, and a lot of other people have said stuff like that. But I'm not sure that's really how it works anymore. The business of the Packers is not really separate from the football side of the Packers. And I think that's true for just about every NFL team. Look at how the business of the Oakland Raiders affected the football of the Oakland Raiders. A big reason they decided to trade Khalil Mack is because they couldn't afford to pay Khalil Mack. They literally didn't have the cash flow to make it happen. There is an overlap here. And so if you're inclined to say that Murphy should just, you know, take care of the Titletown district or you want to criticize him for only doing that, I think there's more to the story here. He needs to be involved on both sides because if he gets that Titletown district nailed down, gets all of that handled, but the Packers, you know, go off the rails on the football side because he wasn't involved, doesn't really matter how great the business organization is because the Packers are terrible. And if Murphy gets too involved on the football side and the business side all falls apart, then it doesn't really matter if the Packers are good, if they can't pay anybody, if they can't function as a real professional sports team. So there does have to be a balance. He can't just do one or the other. He can't be super involved in football, which I think this article shows he's not. And he can't just be involved in the business side because there is no just the business side. Just some thoughts there. Another quote from this piece is absolutely horrifying. It's not an exact quote from Olson, but it is. it does kind of lend you or let you believe the idea that Olson or someone may have hinted to this in, in particular. The quote from Ryman's piece is this, quote, While some board members have said they should be included in more decision-making, the consensus is that the board's size is too unwieldy to be effective for higher-level administration, end quote. This is terrifying. There should be absolutely no involvement from the executive committee, the board, whatever, in the operation of the Packers. Full stop. That's not how it should work. If you think the Packers are mismanaged now, just imagine if there were like a dozen people involved in making decisions. We saw what that looked like. It was the Packers from 1970 through 1992. It did not go well. Too many voices is going to derail your team. And it's terrifying to think that there are some people who have official leadership roles with the Packers that they think that they should be more involved than they are already. It's frightening and I hope it never comes to pass that, that that actually happens. Let's move on to discussing some games from the 2018 season. We have reached the near official midpoint of the season. The Packers, as we conclude this episode, will be halfway through their 2018 schedule. We are talking about games 7 and 8. More precisely, we are talking about their trips to Los Angeles and New England. Teams you may have heard a little bit about over the last couple of weeks. Again, just to recap, why do this? Why go game by game through the, through a season? I think it's worth teasing out the truth, quote-unquote, of the narrative in 2018. Maybe what we've come to believe about the season was wrong. Maybe the things we believed along the way were not correct either. It might help us remember some important things that we forgot. And as in, just as a, at a base level, it helps us remember who did what and when. Who played well at certain points, who played not so well. How do we do it? Ask three questions. What led up to a game? What happened in a particular game? And how should we remember that individual game? 
Now I have to say we are these two games are a little bit different because there's kind of a unifying theme to both the Rams game and the Patriots game. And it ties back to something that I brought up a couple episodes ago. Sometimes when you have a TV show and you come to the end of a season or you come to the end of the series even, it's fun to go back and look and see when that TV show really truly came to the end. Because you know that you know, either because a team or a show jumps the shark or it just keeps going longer than they should. Sometimes there's a high point or a low point in a show that really should have just tied everything up. They should have just stopped right there and not tried to tack on a couple more seasons or a couple more episodes or whatever. Find that actual finale. Well, for the 2018 Packers, for the TV show that was the 2018 Green Bay Packers that starts in, I don't know, whenever you want to start the your NFL season, say the NFL draft, and goes through whenever your team gets knocked out of the playoffs or their their season ends in Week 17. This was the actual finale, this stretch, for the 2018 Packers. Because heading into this game, this, this section of games, these two, the big question about the Packers was whether or not they were contenders or pretenders. And what better way to answer that question than with two games against actual certifiable contenders. Now you can say, what do you really know about teams at the midpoint of the season? And that's fair. Sometimes teams start hot and fade off. Sometimes it takes them quite a while to figure out who they are. But at this point, I think it was fair to say that both the Rams and the Patriots were legit. We kind of knew that they were going to be in the picture towards the end of the season. And once you know it, both of them ended up being in the Super Bowl. The Packers, meanwhile, had faced a bunch of question marks on their schedule prior to this. They had wins over the 49ers and the Bears and the Bills. Eh, not super great. They lost to the Lions. What are the Lions anyway? Because they went on to beat the Patriots. They lost to the Redskins, who annually are just one of those teams that is somewhere between 5 and 11 and 9 and 7. Just always in the middle and you never really go know how good or bad they are and they'll jump up and bite some team now and then and then of course they tied with the vikings who were still kind of in the thick of things at this point so the packers get a chance to go up against some real legit teams and we get a chance to see what the story is on the packers and boy did we ever get an answer game seven The Packers traveled to Los Angeles on October 28th, 2016, to face the Los Angeles Rams. What led up to this game? Well, two important things. First, the Packers signed Danny Vitale to the practice squad. Important, I guess, is a a stretch in some situations. But then also of note, the Raiders traded Amari Cooper to Dallas. Far enough ahead of the trade deadline that we could comment on it uh, prior to the Packers' week eight game. I think this, that was interesting and, and showed that there was a sort of new paradigm in effect in the NFL as far as trades go. And boy, did that come to play for the Packers. What actually happened in this Packers-Rams game though? Well, the Packers, for the most part, went toe-to-toe with an elite NFL team and boy, did it not matter at all because the Rams were able to close and the Packers were not. In a pretty welcome counterpoint to a lot of the games in the first half of the, half of the season, the Packers' defense started pretty strong. The Rams had to punt on six of their first seven drives, and the only drive where they didn't have to punt was one where um, 
they went down and scored a touchdown on a pretty short drive and a pretty important turning point, but we'll get to that. Meanwhile, the Packers on offense were pretty solid against a fairly strong Rams defense. They put up two scoring drives in their first three possessions, and both of those drives featured explosive plays. And as we've emphasized all of last season and into the offseason now, explosive plays are very important. And thanks to some of those explosive plays, the Packers led in this game 10 to nothing. But just like the Lions game three weeks prior, this game began to turn on a punt. That Lions game turned on a very early punt. This one, maybe not quite so much. Just over three minutes left in the second quarter, the Packers forced the Rams to punt. They punted from their own 47-yard line. And when you've got an elite punter, that's like golden punting territory, and it proved to be for the Rams because Johnny Hecker dropped a 52-yard punt right on the Packers' one-yard line. One play later, Aaron Jones was tackled in the end zone for a safety, thanks in part to the questionable decision to run right into the arms of um, Ndamukong Sue and Aaron Donald. But, you know, maybe they would have stopped him anyway. Maybe they try to run off tackle and he still gets caught up, whatever. Who knows? Point is, the Packers spot the Rams two points. It's 10 to 2. After the safety punt, though, the Rams go right down the field and score a touchdown. They miss the two-point conversion, and the Packers still lead 10-8, to but this game is suddenly entirely different. From Hecker's punt to the Rams' touchdown, a span of 10 plays, including kickoffs in there, and the game has changed completely. The Rams received to start the second half, but didn't do anything. The Packers, meanwhile, responded with a good drive, but a key third-and-two play ends with a sack, and ends with their drive. They do have to have to kick a field goal. It's 13 to 8 Rams. Suddenly the Rams are hot. They go seven plays, 75 yards, a touchdown. Score the two-point conversion, it's 16 to 13. They come back again, nine plays, 66 yards, and a touchdown. 23 to 13 Rams, and it kind of feels like things are falling apart for the Packers. That was fun. Oh well. I mean the Rams are good. Maybe we didn't expect the Packers to win. They put up a good fight early, but they fell apart in the third quarter. But then something weird happens. The Packers show some signs of life. For the first time, they really respond, and they don't wait until the fourth quarter to do it. They rip off a five-play, 75-yard drive of their own, capped off by a 33-yard touchdown run by Aaron Jones. It's 23-20. to The Rams are on top, but the Packers are rallying. The Rams kick a field goal at 26-20, and back come the Packers. Five plays, 75 yards, a touchdown again. This one ends with a 40-yard touchdown pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling. The Packers are up 27-26. And hey, we've got a game. Finally, the true Packers have shown up. This is our 2018 Packers team. See that it was rough for the first six games of the season, but they won on the bye week, they sorted it out, and we are getting the true 2018 Packers here. It was so easy to believe that at that moment. Finally, we're seeing the true 2018 Packers. As it turned out, we were. We just didn't know it yet. On the Rams' next drive, the Packers made a key stop and got the ball back to their offense with just over six minutes left. And at this point in the game, a good team takes that drive and either puts the game out of reach with a score, kicks a field goal so the the Rams have to score a touchdown to win, or they leave the team, the other team, with too little time to really mount anything like a significant drive. 
But as we now know, in February, the 2018 Packers were not a good team. On this drive, their first two plays don't go anywhere, really, leaving them with a third and six. And on that third and six, Lane Taylor ends up one-on-one versus Aaron Donald. He does not do his job. Ty Montgomery doesn't do his job either. He misses a block. Aaron Rodgers is sacked, and the Packers have to punt. The Rams go down and kick a field goal, leaving the Packers with just over two minutes left to go down and score. It's 29 to 26 Rams. And then it happens. Ty Montgomery decides to bring the ensuing kickoff out of the end zone, and he fumbles, and the Rams recover. The game is over, and maybe the season is over. How do we remember this game? It's hard for this to to be anything other than the Ty Montgomery game. It's almost TJ Rubley-esque. No matter what else happened in this game, and there were situations where the Packers didn't play as well as they could have, that maybe would have rendered this situation, you know, sort of unimportant if they had executed differently. For all of those things, Ty Montgomery fumbling when he did and how he did kind of destroys every other narrative. It can only be the Ty Montgomery game. And it would kind of turn into the Ty Montgomery week. Because as we look at what led up to the Packers' eighth game of the season in New England against the Patriots on Sunday Night Football, we have to look at what led up to that game. And it was trades. A lot of them. Well, a lot in ways that we'll we'll kind of explain here in a second. The first, though, and foremost, well, maybe not foremost, but the first and most weighty, it felt, at the time, was Ty Montgomery heading to the Baltimore Ravens for a 2027th round pick. There were some conflicting reports on what happened after the Packers-Rams game. Um, There were some conflicting reports on what happened in the, the days after that. Some people said that Ty Montgomery had explicit instructions to kneel. Some said maybe that was a little bit more vague. Some people seemed to think that, you know, they were ripping, he was being ripped anonymously in the Packers locker room. Other people said that was maybe kind of overblown. What did ultimately become clear, I think, is that Ty Montgomery was kind of on an island in the Packers locker room. And he chose to try to get off that island by, I don't want to say lashing out, but talking very forcefully in the locker room early in that week. That kind of left the Packers with no choice there. And Brian Gutekunst was lucky to get anything for him. But then, later in that same trade deadline day, haha, Clinton Dix is traded. And this one was a surprise, heading to Washington for a 2019 fourth-round pick. Seemed a little bit low on the, at the time, given that there was really no indication the Packers were looking to make a move. But now it seems outrageously high considering how he played and that he's not likely, I don't think, to end up back in Washington. It is virtually unprecedented that the Packers would make these kind of moves in season. I asked Gary to do a little bit of research on this and look at some Packers trades and midseason acquisitions over the past, really, the the modern era. So dating back to, to 1994, 1992 or so. And there are just not a lot of trades, period. Much less two guys who had started games for the Packers at any point in their career being traded on the same day 
in season. There's just nothing like it. The closest you really get, looking back, is like middle of the Mike Sherman era when Mike McKenzie gets traded in October after a long holdout. That's really about it. That's the closest thing. But the Packers did two moves on the same day. Reportedly, there have been deals kind of in place in the past. In 2008 is the notable one where the Packers had a deal in place, reportedly, for Tony Gonzalez. But as far as in-season trades, there is just not a lot. Ted Thompson did trade for Anthony Smith at the deadline in 2010 for a conditional seventh-round pick, but didn't they didn't end up having to give that over. You've got the trade for Niall Davis on October 19th. He's gone after appearing in two games. The interesting side note there is that the Packers used the conditional pick that they got trading away Laurenti McRae to get Davis. Then they got the conditional pick back because Davis didn't meet the conditions for the trade. It's a whole deal. But really, there's nothing like this. It was so unusual that this happened at all, and that it would both happen on one day, just adds another interesting, weird twist to the Packers' 2018 season. Also of note, the Packers were reportedly in on Dante Fowler at the trade deadline, according to Ian Rappaport. Fowler ended up getting traded from the Jaguars to the Rams for a 2019 third-round pick and a 2020 fifth-round pick. Later, we found out that the third-round pick had some stipulations from Tom Pelissero. Uh, The 2019 third-round pick that the Rams sent to the Jaguars was conditional based on how many compensatory picks the Rams received. If they get one, that's the pick that would go to to the Jaguars instead of Los Angeles' original pick. If they get multiple compensatory picks, they will send back the highest compensatory pick. I don't know if you follow that. We probably won't see ultimately what ends up happening until the compensatory picks come out. The The balance of the thing is the Jaguars got two picks from the Rams for Dante Fowler. I said at the time that I didn't really love Fowler. He wasn't super athletic, not as, as athletic as you'd expect from a guy who was a, a former first-round pick. Not as productive as you'd have have thought he would be, especially in a a pretty good defense in in Jacksonville. But I did say this, and I'll just quote it specifically. Quote, "I I think there's still something to be said about the idea that there were pass rushers out there for day three picks. And given what we know about day three picks, it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea to at least try, end quote. Now, you can make the argument, playing the results a little bit, that, uh, The Packers were probably not one Dante Fowler away from contending in 2018, which is true. And that certainly has to be part of your evaluation of the trade. For his part, Fowler was pretty productive for the Rams. He had three and a half sacks, eight tackles for a loss, and one fumble forced in 11 games with the Rams, including the Super Bowl. Will he ultimately resign with the Rams, though? That that ends up being a tricky question, which also played into the trade here, too. But the point of the story is this. The Packers were in on Dante Fowler at the trade deadline. Also noteworthy this week, following Clinton Dix's departure, Tremont Williams becomes functionally the Packers' starting free safety. I picked the Packers to beat the Patriots. Still buying into the idea that the 
near upset the Packers pulled in Los Angeles was the true version of the Packers. Here's what I said. Quote, I can't shake the feeling that the Packers can win this game and maybe even win comfortably if they play like they did a week ago. That's a big ask, but this team seems ready to get over the hump. Give me the Packers on top, 28 to 24, end quote. Well, they were not ready to get over the hump. What actually happened in this game? We know a few things about the Patriots by now. The Patriots are not going to beat themselves. They're not going to make the mistakes that cost them the game. What they will do is take away what you do well and wait for you to screw up. And that is exactly what happened. Because this game really just felt like the Patriots were biding their time, just slowing the Packers down before finally taking advantage of a big mistake. The Patriots really limited the damage the Packers' big names could do. Aaron Rodgers threw for 259 yards, but it took him 43 attempts. Devontae Adams had just 40 yards on nine targets. Aaron Jones had 85 yards on 14 carries and four targets. That means the Packers spent 27 plays going to Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams and earned just 125 yards for it. 4.7 yards per play on plays where Adams or Jones were involved. That is the Patriots taking away what you do best. The play-by-play for most of this game is pretty much immaterial. What you need to know is the Patriots, or the Packers, excuse me, tied the game at 17 on their first drive of the third quarter. But from there, the Patriots just absolutely sucked the life out of the Packers. After the Packers scored to tie at 17, the Patriots drove all the way down to the Packers' one-yard line but couldn't punch it in. That's fine. The analytics say they should have gone for it anyway, and the Packers didn't do much else on their next drive. They went three and out. The Patriots then went three and out, but got new life when Robert Tanyan roughed the punter. Not backbreaking since the Patriots didn't go on to score, but kind of just seemed like, in hindsight, evidence that the Packers are starting to come apart a little bit. Then it happens. It looks like the Packers might get a little something going, but just like the previous game, things turn on a big fumble by a running back. They start their drive from their own seven-yard line and get rolling. Mercedes Lewis has a nice catch. Jamal Williams has a nice little run. Marquez Valdez-Scantling makes a 24-yard catch and follows that up with a 26-yard catch, and then the third quarter ends. On the first play of the fourth quarter, Aaron Jones fumbles. The Patriots take over on their own 24-yard line, go 76 yards in 10 plays, and score a touchdown. It's 24-17 Patriots. The Packers, on their next drive, go three and out. The Patriots also take just three plays before they give the ball back to the Packers, but their drive ends with a touchdown. Three plays, 72 yards, ending with a big touchdown catch by Josh Gordon. The Patriots are on top, 31-17, to and the game is over. The Packers fell apart at the absolute worst time, and this should have put to rest the idea that the Packers could not compete with deep, elite teams as we look at how we remember this game. Depth, I think, shows up late in games. When you're fatigued, when you need some of those fringe players to step up, the Packers did not have anybody who could step up, and they fell apart late twice. To me, we, we should remember this game as the real end of the 2018 season. Really, The previous game and this one together, but the Patriots game in particular kind of looked like the true Packers. From this point on, the Packers were on life support. 
Sure, their record coming out of this game was 3-4-1, and one, and that doesn't mean you're out-out, but the Packers would have had to win six of their next eight to get to nine wins, and that nine-win mark is important because the Eagles made the playoffs this year at 9-7, and seven, and if the Packers had finished 9-6-1, and one, they would have gotten in as the second team from the NFC North over the Eagles. All things being equal, blah, blah, blah. Everything else working out exactly the same way. I know some other records would have changed, but you know the point I'm trying to make here. In hindsight, though, just imagine the 2018 Packers winning 75% of their games in a stretch. Six of eight for the 2018 Packers is exhausting just to think about. Just no chance that this team was going to do that. And it was foolish to think so at the time. And I played into that narrative as much as anybody else. I was convinced after this stretch that they're close. They're close. They're so close. If they can just put it together, things will get better. But they never did. And I don't think they could have. Because at this point, there are just four games left in the Mike McCarthy era. And we're really starting the downward spiral. While I've got you here, let's take a second and talk about draft coverage for a second. We haven't done any. We haven't really talked about the NFL draft at all, and I want you to know that that is by design. I don't really like to talk about the NFL draft until after the NFL combine because for better or for worse, so much of the NFL draft does turn on the combine, how guys perform, their 40-yard dash time, their bench press time, their three-cone time, so on and so forth. Between that and all the pro days, that's when you really get an idea of where guys are going to shake out. So we're going to hold off on doing a lot of stuff about individual prospects before we get to the NFL Combine. After that, it's a full-on run for us from then to the NFL Draft itself. We're going to try to do more draft coverage, I think, this year than we've done in the past and try to give you a good idea who the Packers could end up taking because we did pretty good predicting that last year. But just be patient. We're not going to do a ton about individual prospects until then because I think it's it's a good time to wait until uh, and see, because the testing does matter. It probably matters more than it should, but it does matter. So that's why that's just a programming note. Just keep an eye out from there. So thank you for your patience. And I think we've got some real good stuff in the works for you this this year. So it, it'll be good, but it, it may be coming a little bit later than some of the other sites. And I think that's a that's a good differentiating factor for us. We're going to be a little bit patient, but we're going to try to do better. Sound good? Good. That's all I've got for you on this episode. You can find us as you always do at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter and via email by emailing us at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Support us if you'd be so kind on patreon.com slash thepowersweep and via Teespring, click the store link or shop link at thepowersweep.com. And of course, most importantly, by leaving a review for us on iTunes, since that does help more people find the show. We do always love to hear from you in any form, be it that Facebook message or tweet or direct message or email or whatever. Coded message, drop down my chimney via carrier pigeon. Who knows? Nobody's tried that so far. If you could pull that off, that'd be pretty impressive. Um, I'm not saying you should try it. It seems awfully time intensive. Maybe just, you know, send an email instead. But we do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us, any thoughts you give us, any questions or things we can answer for you, it helps all of this become better. And ultimately, it helps us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.